those years. All right, let's get our Bibles out. We're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. This is this, this short three-week series uh, entitled, When Everything Goes Your Way. And uh, we're looking at uh, the idea of keeping our focus today. That's the title of today's message. And we might ask the question, uh, why, why do we struggle to focus? And maybe you would even say, as you, as you have come here today, that, you know, that's a problem I have. I have a, I have a lot of trouble keeping focus in my life. Uh, so I, I read this article, uh, Paula Bailey, the link is in your notes, and um, she gave some help with this, and uh, top four answers, uh, why do we struggle with focus, top four answers are on the screen. Number four uh, is fatigue. Maybe you're going to identify with some of this. Fatigue, uh, too tired, doing too much, staying up too late, burning the candles at both ends. Is anybody here? Anybody got the fatigue? Uh, secondly, or number three, stress, deadlines. Demands that others put on us or demands that we put our, on ourselves, and that's creating stress in our lives. And when we have stress, we lose focus. Or number two, multitasking. Multiple screens open while pretending to pay attention to what's in the room. Anybody guilty of that? Anybody willing to admit it? Okay. And that's, uh, that goes on in our house as well. Number one, and this was a surprise to me, boredom. Boredom causes a lack of focus, not doing anything important with my life. I lack challenge, I lack vision, I lack purpose in life. And so whether it's fatigue, stress, multitasking, or boredom, this is causing us to lose focus in our lives. And um, it should go without saying as we come here with the Word of God open in front of us and professing to be believers in Jesus Christ, it should go without saying that a Christian must be laser-focused on Jesus Christ, on His mission, and on bringing glory to God with, with every aspect of who we are. That, that, for a Christian, should come to us as a result of having our eyes on Jesus Christ. And that should be true, that we're laser-focused on Jesus if things are going our way and if we're in the midst of difficulties and trials. And as we come to 1 Kings 18, everything is going Elijah's way. He has no other recourse as he's coming into this particular episode. He has no other recourse but to remain focused on Yahweh in light of the circumstances that he's facing. We're going to see one of the most incredible showdowns in history where Elijah defeats the 450 prophets of Baal, who is a false god, and reestablishes the worship of Yahweh in the kingdom of Israel. Everything was going his way, and he kept his focus through it all. And that should be our aim. As we see the text today and we start working through this chapter, that should be our aim. Here it is on the screen, it's in your notes. When everything is going my way, I'll keep my focus on God. Now, everything about this message, we can't miss this. It's in the notes, you're gonna see it as we work through this. Everything is vertical about this message. Everything is top down. Everything is God delivering to us. What this is not, as we look at 1 Kings 18, what this is not is some character study on Elijah where we would look at Elijah as being the hero. Elijah did this, and we should do that too. 
No, no, this is all about God. And if Elijah were here, he'd be horrified if anyone ever taught that this is some kind of character lesson on how awesome Elijah is. He wants us to know, Elijah wants us to know that this is all the Lord, that it's all vertical, that everything is coming from him. And so when everything is going my way, I'll keep my focus on God as he first of all encourages me with clarity. Now it seems foolish to say it, but without clarity, there's no focus. Without clarity, there's no focus. If you're a photographer, and I'm not talking about you're using your phone to take pictures. You're not a photographer. You have a phone that takes pictures. But if you're a photographer and you have an actual camera that's not actually a phone, like you can't make any calls on it or send texts, it's just a, a, a camera, you clean the lens. You clean the lens, okay? And, and you make sure there's enough ambient light or you create enough light to take your picture because if you haven't cleaned the lens and you don't have enough light, you're never going to get things in focus. A photographer knows that. And if there's only uncertainty in our lives, if there's only confusion, then focus is going to elude us. Now, we're going to work through this chapter. If you've already looked ahead, it's 46 verses. I mean, who thought that was a good idea for a Sunday morning? I mean, who was that guy? Who picked 46 verses? <laughs> this guy right here. So we're going to work through it. We're not going to read all the verses. I'm going to leave that to you. If you've not already read them in preparation for today, read them afterwards. Read the whole story. And the verses that we, of necessity, are going to have to pass over with just a comment. Verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now, the many days here, we looked at it last week. Elijah appears on the scene. He's a prophet, preaching a hard word, says there's going to be a drought. God needs to protect him. And so God gets him out of Israel. He goes east, and then he goes north, and, and, and he's up in Phoenicia uh, to get away from Ahab, the king to whom he proclaimed this drought. And so after many days, those are the many days, he's been away for a while, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, so the Bible, you can write this down right away, the Bible provides clarity. This is what Elijah's modeling for us. The Bible provides clarity. In the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab. Enough hiding, you're gonna go back to Israel. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And this is what they've been waiting for, is the end of the drought, the end of the famine that's been devastating, not just Israel, but the surrounding countries. Verses 2 to 4, we see this, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. It says here, now Obadiah is another prophet. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So he's a faithful prophet of Yahweh. And when Jezebel, we'll come back to her, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So he's a faithful prophet. Prophet. He's still working in the court of Ahab. We don't know how he was navigating that because that couldn't have been easy. And he's covertly protecting these other faithful prophets, hiding them away from Ahab and from Jezebel especially who wanted to kill them. And so now there's this plan coming together where Ahab wants he and Obadiah to go out and just scour the land as officials from the court to see what resources are still available to help the country survive the drought and the famine. Famine. So they're going out looking for resources. Verses 5 and 6 tell us about that. In the course of doing that, verse 7, 
Elijah meets up with Obadiah. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my Lord Elijah? Verse 8, and he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, go tell Ahab the king, Behold, Elijah is here. Now, Obadiah knows this is a death sentence. I mean, Ahab's really, really mad at Elijah for pronouncing, uh, proclaiming this drought on the land and causing all the devastation over these years. He's really mad at him. He tried to find him to kill him. Obadiah knows if I go to tell him that, I, that Elijah wants to see him, that literally he's going to shoot the messenger. Obadiah is going to end up dead. So this is a death sentence. Verses 9 through 14 uh, tell us all about that. And Elijah responded, promising that no harm would come to him. And Obadiah, I mean, he, he so admires Elijah and trusts God that he takes him at his word. In fact, this is what Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, verse 15, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there. Don't worry about it. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, let's just pause right here and just acknowledge both prophets are trying to find the thing that we're talking about here. Both of them want clarity in the midst of this multiple-year drought and famine that's affected the land. They want clarity with respect to God's next move in Israel. And that clarity allowed them to act decisively as believers and prophets. And so they're, they're both operating on the basis of what the Word of God, there it is again, we're looking for clarity, another mention of the Word of God. They're both looking to say something, to believe something, know something on the basis of the Word of God as it was delivered to them. Now, question, how clear are you on the times that we're in and what God wants from you. Obadiah and Elijah are looking for clarity on the basis of the times they were in and to know what to do next. Are you seeking that from the Lord? God, what do you want me to do in the midst of the times that we're in to fulfill my purpose as a Christian? You know, one of the great uh, challenges that we have faced over these last 18 months. Now, when I say the last 18 months, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about the last 18 months? Everybody knows what I'm talking about? I don't have to say the P word. Right? Everybody knows? Because I don't want to use the P word. I think if we just stop talking about it, we just get on with our lives. And so the challenges, one of the challenges we've faced over the last 18 months is the lack of clarity. Would you agree with that? Lack of clarity, and in fact, the often conflicting information that is coming to us by all kinds of media, not to mention the many so-called truth claims that are being made on social media that have, for Christians, brought more confusion than clarity. Would you agree with that? So much more confusion than clarity. And often what's happening as Christians is we're reading other Christian sites and what Christians are saying, and those Christians are using Scripture. I'm just telling you right now, so much Scripture is being used in error to justify all matter of truth claims that are not in fact true. And that's just compounding the confusion and the lack of direction that we have. And so I need to say this as clearly as I can 
because this is a point about clarity. If you're a Christian, if you're here in this room, if you're watching on the live stream and you're a Christian, your concern, ready for it? Your concern is the gospel. That's it. Your concern is the gospel. Your concern is that people hear about Jesus. Your concern is to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that we are sinners. He came as the Savior of the world. He gave his life on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day to new life, and he is coming again to receive to himself those who are his by faith. That is our concern, period, as the follow, followers of Jesus Christ. And so your mission in life is not to convince people one way or another about masks or vaccines or government overreach or any number of other side issues that might be pandemic related. I said the P word. That might be related to the last 18 months or not. Maybe it's some other entirely different thing that's not the gospel. We're not attempting to establish some quasi-theocratic Christian nation. So important to say this a day before an election. We're not attempting to establish a quasi-theocratic Christian nation. We're not working to impose the Judeo-Christian ethic on our pluralistic country in which we are very privileged to live and in, and in which we have many rights to worship God in freedom and without hindrance. We're not shaping the culture. That's not our mission. We're not shaping the culture unless we're shaping it indirectly by preaching the gospel and seeing revival and people getting converted and so many people are Christians that it's affecting the culture. Then indirectly, yes, we're affecting the culture. But the mission is not to change the culture. The mission is to lead people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're to be about, this is the way the Apostle Paul said it, we're to be about nothing except Christ and Him crucified. That's it. We're on a mission here at Harvest to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Full stop. Paul said later on in that same letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, we endure anything. We endure all of our circumstances, whatever those circumstances might be, we endure the good times, we endure the bad times, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And we should ask ourselves right now, have I been doing anything over the last 18 months to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? So I hope that's clear. I hope you're encouraged that that is so clear. I hope that helps you make decisions. I hope that helps you chart a course. I hope that helps you find a purposeful way in life so that you can contribute to the cause of Christ in your circle of influence among the people that are in your reach and who you're related to, friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members. 
people that you can impact with, the spiritual gifts that God has given to you, the talents, the time, the passions that God has put in your heart, all of that given to you by Christ so you can contribute to this mission of the gospel. Here's a second one. See this next. I'll keep my focus on God as he envelops me with courage. Now, it's one thing to have clarity, but if you only have clarity and you don't have courage, you're not going to do much with it. And so we need this courage. We need God to give us this courage. And in verse 17, remember what's going down here. Ahab has all the power. He's the king. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, the king is doing, I know technically he's not a politician, he's a king. But the king is doing what all politicians do. When they got caught doing something they ought not to have done, when they're in the wrong, they do not take responsibility. They find some petty functionary to blame it on. Or they blame it on the opposition, or they blame it on some other politician. They always blame, or they blame the taxpayer. Politicians always blame shift, and that's what Ahab is doing here. He's just modeling that for future politicians. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? He's trying, to, he's trying to blame him for the drought because he was the one who delivered the news on behalf of God. But Elijah isn't, isn't going to be pushed around, not even by the king, and he replies in verse 18, see it there in the text, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You have. You and and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. You rejected the word of God. Forget about the drought for a second. Forget about the pandemic that results from the drought. The drought is the result of you abandoning the word of God and abandoning Yahweh. Let's get down to the real issue and the root cause of this. Now recall that this is, as we said last week in the starting of this series, that this is a confrontation. What we're seeing in this is a confrontation between two belief systems, between the worshipers of Yahweh and the worshipers of Baal. It's a battle for the hearts of Israel's people who had given themselves at this point in history to false worship. And here's the real throwdown in verse 19. Now therefore... Elijah's going to set up the stage now where this battle is going to take place. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. Fill the place. Get all the spectators in there. Get everybody that we can get there to be witnesses to what is going to go down. And then he says, bring the 450 prophets of Baal. And while you're at it, bring the 400 prophets of Asherah. And Asherah was the consort to Baal. So all part of the same thing. And then he adds this. Who eat... At Jezebel's table. Now he's poking the bear. I mean, as if what he said already wasn't provocative enough, now he brings Jezebel into this, and she's the queen, but she's not Jewish. Ahab didn't marry a Jewish woman. He married a Phoenician woman who became his queen, and he did that because Israel wanted to form an alliance with Tyre, which is in Phoenicia, they want an alliance because the Syrian king was a threat regionally to them. If we form an alliance, this marriage is going to seal that alliance, then the king of Syria won't come over. Well, the problem with that was that Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal. 
And when she came into the marriage, she brought that worship with her. Now listen, King Solomon had done that. He'd had many, many marriages with other kings and other countries, and they gave their daughters over to be married to him. He had all kinds of wives that were all about these strategic partnerships and these alliances with other countries. Many of them, the scriptures tell us, brought their gods with them, but all they did was just worship that God themselves. That's bad enough on its face, but it wasn't influencing the country. Jezebel's a force. I mean, she's not just any uh, trophy bride that's given over to form an alliance. Jezebel comes in and she's like, you know what we're going to do? All Israel's going to worship Baal. We're done with Yahweh. So she comes in with all her power and all her force to bring this about. But Elijah, he's not intimidated. He has the courage of Yahweh in his heart. He can stand against the corrupt worship and the power behind it. And I wonder as I read this about Elijah and I see what God is doing for him, I wonder where that courage is today. I wonder where that courage is in the followers of Jesus Christ today. The courage to proclaim the gospel, no matter who or what is pushing against it. Because it's not that I don't see people being courageous. I see people being courageous, being bold, putting their opinions out there, pushing back on things that they think are important. I see lots of, if you want to call it, I see lots of courage with respect to taking a stand on masks and vaccines. I see a lot of courage and boldness and pushback with respect to government overreach. But I also see beyond matters related to the pandemic, I also see people pushing back on things like animal rights. I see people pushing back on the environment. I see people pushing back, and I'm talking about Christians, pushing back on matters related to the economy and how the government is handling those things. I see lots of courage about all of these things. And then when I look at all these things, and I realize that every single one of those things is going to burn up when Jesus comes back. Like it's all just going to be ash. And I wonder as the followers of Christ, what are we really giving ourselves to? Like the things that we're super courageous about and bold about really at the end of the day don't matter very much. That's sad. Again, back to the Apostle Paul before boarding a ship for Israel, and, and he's getting on this ship, and everyone knows it. He knows it. The elders who are meeting with him, they're the elders from the church at Ephesus, they're meeting with him before he gets on the ship. Everyone knows he's going to go to Israel, he's going to get off that boat, and they're going to arrest him. Everyone knows it. And this is what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders as they're pleading with him not to go. Acts 20, 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, I think it's a bit of a tricky question. If I, if I were to have interviewed people as you came into worship today, you came in from the parking lot, and we just did a little streeter interview, and I, I said to you, do you consider your life of value? Do you consider your life precious? And I think most of us would answer the question and say yes, because we're thinking more holistically. And what Paul's really thinking about here is his physical life. Even with respect to our physical lives, we spend an awful lot of time on ourselves because we value our lives. We value our physical lives. We, we value and consider them precious. And Paul is saying on the verge of being arrested and likely executed for his faith, I do not account 
my physical life of any value nor as precious to myself. And then he says, what I do consider valuable is if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, here it is again, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And I do think it's fair to say that most Christians today account their earthly lives of great value and very precious. Thus all the time we put into that. These same Christians prioritize because of that, because we consider our earthly lives to be so valuable, so precious, we prioritize comfort and we prioritize safety so we shrink back from the mission that's been entrusted to us. We shrink back from testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And that explains where we've been over these last 18 months. That explains why many Christians, and I only want to speak about Christians here. That's why many Christians have had this this fear or fight in their hearts as it relates to the pandemic, the virus. Some are cowering in fear over this virus, over the pandemic, over everything. Some haven't even, they're still not really even emerging from their houses and not doing the things that we're even allowed to do. Others have been all fight and pushing against every regulation and everything that's been happening. There's Christians on both ends of this spectrum. I suspect that most of you, because you're here today, you're, most of you are somewhere in between those two extremes of fear and fight. So we're struggling with this because we're putting too much value on our earthly life. If you're fearful about all of this, maybe I should be speaking more directly to those on the live stream because you're, you're not here. Maybe some of you aren't here because you're fearful. If you're fearful still about all of this, it's because you value your earthly life too much. You consider it too precious. If you're fighting everything that's being done as a public health measure, it's because you value your earthly life too much. It's because you consider it too precious. We can't live on either end of that spectrum and it not manifest itself as you think your earthly life is the most important thing. And it's, it's the furthest from the most important thing. Instead, the focus must be on the gospel and not on the current circumstances. The circumstances, favorable or difficult, blessing or trials, are merely the context in which the ministry that we have received from the Lord Jesus is conducted. So do you have the courage from God to live that way? And by the way, I'm not conjuring this courage up myself. I'm not trying to make this happen in my life. That leads us into the next point. I'm going to keep my focus on God as He emboldens me with faith. I can have clarity. I can have courage. But that courage is not rooted in anything in me. It's rooted in the faith that I've been given in Jesus Christ. So as I keep my focus on God, He's going to embolden me with faith. We come to the showdown. This is really the meat of the passage, the part that everybody considers their favorite. Verse 20, Ahab arranges for everyone to be there. He takes up Elijah's challenge. Verse 21, this is critical. 
How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That's a great question for every Christian every day. How long will you go limping between two opinions? How long are you going to be pulled away this way and that way away from God? If the Lord is God, he says, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In our context, this is the way we would say this. Quit calling yourself a Christian if you're not going to live the Christian life. Because they were still calling themselves Israel, but they weren't at all about Yahweh. So make your choice. We would say the same thing today. Don't pretend to be a Christian. Be one or don't be one. I'm fine with either. The offer is put out to anyone here. Please come to faith in Jesus Christ. But if you don't, then go throw yourself into whatever God, whatever idol, whatever thing you want to throw yourself into. No one is mandating that you become a Christian. We're not trying to force anyone here. That's going to be the Lord's work. So you want to follow Jesus? Follow Jesus. It's awesome. If you think you can find something better than Jesus to follow, go follow. That's the choice that Elijah's putting in front of the people. Don't go limping between two different opinions. Follow God or don't. Now, before the match begins... Elijah notes the odds, verse 22, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. A little qualification there. We know there's Obadiah. We know that there's the two groups of 50 that he's been hiding. So there's at least 101 other ones. But he's saying, I'm the only one standing here on Mount Carmel making this challenge. I'm the one who God's going to work through doing this. So I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And um, verses 23 to 26, we get the, the layout of what's going to happen here. There's two altars, there's two piles of wood, there's two bulls that are, that are going to be chopped up and put onto the wood once they're put on, once the wood is put onto the altar. And, and once that's in place, then, then they're going to call out in prayer and, and Yahweh or Baal are going to bring the fire to consume the sacrifice. You kind of get how the game is set up here. And... Um, only prayers are going to be offered to beseech Yahweh and Baal to ignite the sacrifice. So, so the Baalists, they won the coin toss. And so they went first. And they cried out for hours. They cry out for hours to no avail. Nothing happens. Here's what they say, verse 26. They're praying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And then this is what, when you're, when you're winning, when you're winning and you're beating the other guy, I mean, you could do that graciously. But in sports, it's way more fun to make fun of the other team. Like mock them a little bit, you know, taunt them a little bit. There's even a penalty for this in the NFL. You can't taunt. But Elijah taunts. He takes the flag. Verse 27, Elijah mocks them saying, cry aloud. <laughs> By the way, I feel really sorry for people who don't get sarcasm. I mean, I love sarcasm. I'm like a huge fan of sarcasm. I feel really sorry for it. If you're one of those people, like, I never get sarcasm. I'm sorry. I can pray for you to get it. Because the scriptures are filled with sarcasm. This might be the most obvious example of sarcasm in the entire scripture. And it comes from Elijah. Elijah mocked him saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Does Elijah believe he's a God? Of course he doesn't. This is sarcasm. For he's a God. Then he says, either he's musing, maybe he's just thinking about something. 
Yeah, I was just lost in thought, or, or he's relieving himself. <laughs> Elijah actually said that. He's relieving himself. In our household, we have, some, you know, we have grandkids around all the time, so like, Baal's gone potty. Yeah, he's gone to do some pee-pee. That's the other P word. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he's just gone away. Or perhaps he's asleep and he has to be awakened. Now, you can imagine when you start taunting somebody, how do people take that? Not very well. And, And the Baal prophets, they don't take it very well either. It actually incited them to more desperate measures. Look what they do in verses 28 and 29. They cry aloud. They start cutting themselves after their custom with swords and lances. The the blood's gushing out upon them. And as midday passed, I mean, this is going on for hours, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. We know why. He's not real. He's not real. He can't answer because, you know how uh, God is the great I am? Baal's the great he isn't. He's the great he isn't. He's, he's nowhere. He's nothing. And so they gave it their best shot. Nothing happened. The bull parts are all sitting on top of the wood, on top of the altar over there. So Elijah's turn. He steps up to the plate. God, you know, God, this is a truth. When we're talking about faith here, God builds our faith through experiences that are at times crushing losses. God can build our faith that way. Very often he does. Sometimes he builds our faith through glorious victories, and that's what happens here. So Elijah says, this is verse uh, 30 to 35, he says, come on in close, everyone, and he repairs the altar, and he repairs it with 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, the text tells us. He's throwing shade at Ahab and the people that have kept the kingdom divided, because at this point in history, the 10 tribes of the north are the northern kingdom, the two tribes in the south are the southern kingdom, they're divided, two different kings sometimes even warring against each other. And Elijah makes it very clear, there are 12 tribes and there is one nation, even if you guys can't get it together. Then he built up the stones. He built a trench around the altar. By the way, uh, Baal's guys didn't do that. They didn't build a trench. We don't even know what that's for yet. They put the wood on top of this new altar. They cut the bull up. They placed the pieces on the wood. And then Elijah had people start carting water up to the sacrifice. They start pouring water on to the bull. It's running down the wood. It's running down the stones, and it fills up the trench. Water jar after water jar until everything was fully soaked and saturated. And Elijah's making this as hard as possible, as impossible as it could could possibly be, so that it's going to be so obvious that it was the Lord who consumed the sacrifice. Elijah doesn't want to take any credit at all. He wants God to receive all the glory for this. And then he prayed. Verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you could underline or highlight this next part, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. And this is the entire point of Elijah's ministry in these episodes we're looking at. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
You can't miss that all of this points to the sovereignty of God and His power alone to bring about salvation. There is no human effort here. There are no works that can be performed that gain the favor of God or make any impact in this world. As powerful of a prophet as Elijah was, and he's like either the most powerful prophet or he's number two with Moses. It's either Moses and Elijah or Elijah and Moses. In fact, those are the two guys that show up at the transfiguration with Jesus. It's Moses and Elijah. This is one of the two most powerful prophets of Israel. And he wants everyone to know that if anything good happens in life, in this world, it's miraculous and it comes from God. And the same is true for us. The Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says this concerning our salvation, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You know, in essence, you don't come to Jesus, Jesus comes to you. You don't come to Jesus, Jesus comes to you. He meets you right where you are. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, listen, God heard. This was, after all, God's show, his game. He planned to bring his people back. That was the plan from the start. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. I love to try and picture this. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And I read that verse, and I was like, I want Steven Spielberg to do a movie on Elijah. I want to see all of the special effects brought to bear on this verse. And still the reality would be more awesome, don't you think? Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they knew what it meant. Baal, zero. God, infinity. He gets the win. They knew when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They repented, they rejected Baal, they believed, their hearts had been returned to Yahweh and they were emboldened with faith. Now this next part, again, as we're just talking about our faith increasing, this next part is very Old Testament. I don't know any other way to describe it, but verse 40 is very Old Testament. Elijah said to them, now that we've gained the victory, let's seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 450 prophets slaughtered by the people on that day. Again, very Old Testament. Not something we would practice today, thankfully. But the point ought to be clear. The lesson for us, without the carnage, is that these idolatrous practices of ours must be slain. The false prophets must be silenced. We must flee anything that leads us away from pure devotion to Yahweh. We have to be ruthlessly rooting this out of our lives. Well, as the day progressed with Baal defeated, the drought would, would, would now end the faith of the people would now be emboldened again because God was at work to end the drought. Verse 41, a sound of the rushing rain came to Israel. 
And Ahab would see, and this is verses 44 and 45, a little cloud like, the man, like a man's hand rising from the sea, and in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And faith in God regained its place as God worked His will in and through His people. And I wonder if that's what's needed right now in your own life. Are you renewing your faith, or are, or, or are you looking for faith to be birthed in you to become a follower of Jesus Christ in this moment? Is that, what, is, is, is that what's needed right now in your life? Have you lost focus? Do you need to say, as Israel did when they saw all of this go down, do you need to say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Here in this room, are there people who just need to say that? You know what? I've been off track. I've lost focus. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is my God. Is that the commitment that you need to make in this moment? Finally this, I'll keep my focus on God as He empowers me with His strength. There's a stunning denouement to this narrative that we'll look at next week in verse 19. The message is titled, Remain Humble, and it's the aftermath of this very event on Mount Carmel. We're going to see God needing to strengthen the prophet in the face of a terrible depression and despair that gripped him. In the immediate aftermath of what happened on Mount Carmel, Elijah, he outran Ahab to Jezreel, and he was able to do so, verse 46 says, because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. God supernaturally empowered him to be able to make that journey. He had supernatural strength from the Lord, and that dependency on the power of God in our lives as unbelievers, as believers is critical. If we're going to keep our focus, if at any time we begin to function in our own strength, if at any time our focus is lost, we're going to need the hand of the Lord to be on us. So we worship. We live in close community as believers. We pray alone in devotion to God and with others. We read and meditate on the Word of God. We testify to the supernatural works of God in our lives. And all of those disciplines allow us to keep our focus when everything is going our way and even when it isn't. Amen? Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, I, I do pray with gratitude to you again for your word because you're so kind to speak to us with clarity. And God, I have no doubt that there are some in this room right now who are struggling with focus. And that can be a daily thing, a weekly thing, Father. It can be a real challenge for us to keep our eyes on you. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would work in every heart, every mind. And Father, to work on our wills so that we would conform to your will and your ways. Father, help us all to put the gospel at the center of everything, at the center of, our, of, of the transformation of our own lives, how we interact with this world, the, at the center of the message that we preach and proclaim so that life would come to those around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, continue this good work in us 
whether you're blessing us, help us keep our focus on you. Whether it's a time of trial and difficulty, help us to keep our focus on you. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ.